One in three kids is overweight or obese. Welcome to Kids Can, Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Hello, and welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting issues children face daily and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. On today's episode, we're chatting with a professor of psychology, director of the Rutgers Social, Emotional, and Character Development Lab, and co-director of the Academy for Social and Emotional Learning in Schools, Dr. Maurice Elias. Dr. Elias is here to share his insights on how we can support children in achieving social and emotional well-being and how social-emotional learning helps children develop positive character traits, relationships, and behaviors. Through his research, Dr. Elias emphasizes the need to include social and emotional learning in schools to encourage a sense of positive purpose. He has received various distinguished awards for his research today, We will discuss the development of social-emotional learning competencies, how it relates to children's academic achievement and success in life, and a lot more. Hi, Dr. Elias, and welcome to Kids Can. Greetings. It's great to be able to join you. I'm just thrilled to have you on the episode today. And I'm going to just jump right into it. In a previous episode of Kids Can, we addressed some issues that are rarely spoken about but impact countless families in America. It is no secret that mental health issues affecting children in the U.S. are rising dramatically. The Youth Mental Health Report provided by Mental Health America stated that the number of youth experiencing depressive episodes increased by more than 300,000 in the past year. And that's just off for one data point. Dr. Elias, your research centers around social-emotional learning and character development that improves child health and promotes social and emotional intelligence that supports overall mental and physical health. Can you tell us a bit about your research in general and the Rutgers Social-Emotional and Character Development Lab? Yeah, you know, when I first started my work as a clinical psychologist, it began to occur to me that a number of things that I was seeing could have been different if families and policies and schools handled things differently. And I began to think that maybe my uh, unique vantage point in this field was going to be in the area of prevention. And so we began to look at what are the factors that seem to influence mental health. And we learned that this has a lot to do with uh, social, emotional skills that kids have or don't have. And so, you know, when kids go to therapy, A lot of what therapists do, and I was being trained as a clinical psychologist, a lot of what therapists do is to teach them these skills. And so it just seemed to me to make a lot of sense to try to teach these skills before problems arose than after problems arose. Now, obviously, there are some kids that are going to need it both times. But it seemed to me that um, my unique interest and angle would be to focus on the prevention side. And so since I arrived at Rutgers 43 years ago, our lab has been working on many, many aspects of creating preventively oriented and actually health-promoting interventions for uh, kids. Over that period of time, more than 40 years, how do you feel about the progress that has been made in our space? You know, the progress is too slow, and, and we know that because of the statistics you just provided. It's not easy to think preventively. You know, when nothing's happening, It doesn't seem like we should exercise a lot of effort. 
So people tend to get mobilized by crisis, difficulty, and you know, reports like the, like the one that you cited are one of the reasons why this topic has come up. But the mental health of kids was just as important when the rates of depression were lower because the rates then were still not what we want them to be. So to me, I think that the progress has not moved fast enough. That being said, I think that in the schools, it is now becoming clearer that mental health and academic achievement are inextricably connected. And I think that's going to mean some uh, positive things for this whole movement. Yeah, that's a great point to jump right in. So in our last episode, I spoke with Action for Healthy Kids' founding board member, Jean Regali-Carr, who shared her story and experiences in coping with the loss of her son due to overdose. One of the points that she made was that we need to focus on prevention around mental health and addiction issues, just like you're saying, especially in schools where kids spend so much of their time. And of course, prevention at schools is an issue that we at Action for Healthy Kids care passionately about. So as we get started in this part of the conversation, can you describe what a typical social-emotional learning program in a school looks like today? You know, social-emotional learning is often thought of in terms of programs. But if I may just digress from what you asked specifically, it's really about how is social and emotional learning, and from our perspective, character development, brought into the entire school. One of the difficulties that, ha- that we're experiencing now is the residue of a program mentality. And it, it, it extends from the idea that prevention can be inoculated. And we certainly think that way in some ways with regard to physical health. But even in physical health, it's the overall health that matters. And inoculating for one specific disease is not the main strategy for health. In a similar way, giving a program that you build social and emotional skills for 45 minutes once a week is not going to create a mentally healthy child, and it's not going to build all the skills a child needs. So what we want to think about is what does it mean to be in a school that values social and emotional and character development as a complement, ally, supporter to academic development? And yes, it's true that social and emotional programs have a place in that, just in the same way as we teach reading, and we have reading periods in school, and we have health classes in school, but no one assumes that your reading, your health, or your social and emotional development is going to be determined by just those moments. Those moments are the catalysts for what really becomes a life-changing approach. So you become a reader for life. You become someone who's dedicated to being healthy. And you become someone who believes that you want to have good social, emotional, and character development. So that's where we're heading in this area. One of the bridges between what your guest, Gene, talked about last time and what we do is the idea of health decision-making. Decision-making is an essential social and emotional skill. We certainly talk about things like empathy, and we talk about the ability to manage your strong emotions and even recognize the emotions that you're having. That's very important. The ability to get along in groups, critical social-emotional skills, perspective-taking. But at the core of all of these is problem-solving and decision-making. And health requires that of us 
on a daily basis. So many of the things that we do, our self-care, our diet, some of our decisions about who we go with, what we ingest, are in essence health-related decisions. So the better we are at decision-making, the more likely we are to make healthy decisions. I hear what you're saying, and I'll stand corrected about the program part. Can you talk a little bit about what a typical school does in terms of its approach for social-emotional learning today? And the reason I'm asking is because some of our listeners, I'm sure, just won't be familiar with what traditionally happens in schools today. And I'm not talking about the ideal. I guess what I'm searching for is what would your average school look like when it comes to uh, these kinds of issues and social-emotional learning today? Well, you know, social-emotional learning is pervasive. Social-emotional learning, our ability to deal with our feelings, our ability to get along with other people, our ability to make decisions. I mean, this is ubiquitous in life. When people think about, well, maybe SEL doesn't belong in schools, it makes about as much sense to say, well, you know, oxygen doesn't belong in the air. Blood doesn't belong in your body. You just can't even think of it accurately. When kids walk into a school building for typically 180 school days, every single kid walks into that building and they want to matter. They want to be recognized. They wanna feel as if they're gonna make a contribution to the school, to their friends, to their classroom, to the world. This is how we're built. We are built to serve. And so when kids walk into the building and they meet a very cold environment, when they're not greeted warmly, they begin to wonder, what's gonna happen today? And when they go into their classrooms and the classrooms get right down to business as if learning was disconnected from who we are, then they further wonder, what's going on here? And as the school day progresses, when kids' emotions are ignored, and it's assumed that when kids walked in and they put their coats in the locker, they put their emotions in the locker, kids feel very disconnected from what's being taught to them. We've all been at meetings where we've sat there, and anybody looking at us would think that we're engaged, but we're really thinking about something else. Most of them sit there and they're not disruptive, but they're not connected. You could be very depressed and you could be very miserable and not seek to disrupt your classroom, and no one will know. And this is what happens in too many schools today. Yeah, that's the wonderful description of some of the challenges that we're facing in our schools today. And I know that one area that you have worked on, and you already mentioned it a little bit earlier in our conversation, is a more recent variation around social-emotional health that also addresses character development specifically. So can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between what I'll call traditional SEL programming, social-emotional learning programming, and programs that also address character development, which are called social-emotional and character development, SECD. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between these two kinds of approaches? If you picture a sailboat, you can imagine a sailboat on the water, and you ask yourself, well, what moves the sailboat forward? What moves the sailboat forward is the sail. It catches the wind, and maybe a propeller. And so you've got the ability to move things forward. But what determines the direction we're going to go in? Well, that's the rudder. If you don't have a rudder, it's very difficult for a boat to navigate. Social and emotional skills are like the propeller. 
like the sails. They move us forward. But the rudder, our character, is what navigates us. We call it social and emotional and character development because without both, you can't get to where you want to go. And that leads us to the big question, where do you want to go? What is the destination? What is your positive purpose? This is to me where the connection to mental health and new insights about mental health come in. What is depression about? Depression is about either not knowing where we want to go or knowing where we want to go and not believing we're going to get there. So the absence of a positive purpose, the absence of encouragement toward a positive purpose is one of the things that we're seeing in society today. It's mirrored in adult cynicism about how we can change things and how we can make things better. But kids, kids begin to think that they're not going to matter, that they're not important, that they don't have a path. And so social and emotional character development is about not only giving kids social and emotional skills to move them forward and character to help them, but also to give them a destination, a sense of positive purpose, a belief that, yeah, you can get somewhere. Not to oversimplify this, but when I know I have someplace valued to go, I am less likely to do things to myself that are going to keep me from getting there. And when I don't have a place to go, and I'm disappointed about that, I am likely to react. I can react with depression. I can react by lashing out at other people. I can react by taking some kinds of substances that will keep me from focusing on just how disappointed I am that I don't have a direction to go in. When we talk about substance use, we sometimes don't talk about it fully the way we should. By that I mean that a substance doesn't just arrive inside a person. A lot has to happen before that happens. A lot of decisions have to get made. A lot of planning has to take place. And that is very binding of our emotions, of our focus, and it distracts us from our disappointments. I think we have to understand that the mental health difficulties that we see and some of the related problem behaviors that we see are connected to not having a clear sense of purpose, direction, meaning, goals in life, and not feeling that sense of value, not feeling that there's somebody who cares about you and who needs you to be healthy. This is how we look at it. Yeah, during our previous episode, as you know, this connection that you're specifically talking about and using it as just one example, I realize, between mental health issues and substance use or abuse was a recurring topic. Can you talk a little bit specifically about that connection, about what the research says about that connection? We're facing such huge challenges in our society today. In most recent years, more than 100,000 Americans die of overdose deaths per year. Many of these issues, not all of course, but many of the issues start earlier in a person's life, during childhood or during high school, and it's really devastating for that person and their family. Can you talk a little bit about what the research says about the link between mental health issues, social, emotional, and character development, and things like 
substance use and abuse? Yeah, there are two kind of main pathways that I think it's important to differentiate. And this, so for example, when it comes to opioids, there are a number of people that find their way to opioids through, if you will, perfectly innocent reasons. For health reasons, they get prescriptions and maybe they're inappropriate prescriptions, but they don't come by their pathway to drug use of their own volition. Then when the power of these drugs comes upon you, it leads to a whole different pathway. And there are definitely going to be mental health consequences to that, but the mental health consequences are secondary. The other pathway is where the mental health difficulties lead to a substance use that is, to my way of thinking, an unfortunate attempt to be adaptive. My own view is that we all try to do the best we can with what we have and what we know in a given situation. And for some people, the best they can do is to try to take a substance that is going to reduce some of what they're feeling that they're unable to cope with adequately. And these are issues that if we look earlier, we can say, well, for some of those people, and it's certainly not all, but for some of those people, earlier focus on being able to manage strong emotions and being able to problem solve can eventually deter those negative choices. Can but, we talk a little bit about that specifically? And I'll, I'll kind of connect these two issues because we were talking about school programming around social, emotional, and character development and this kind of preventive idea and methodology. So the big question I have is, are our school interventions today, are they adequate? when it comes to the preventive work that you and I both would love to see more prevalent right. in schools. Do we have an adequate system for this today? Well, you know, you're, now you're raising a policy question mm -hmm. uh, because some schools do. Some schools are absolutely fantastic. Character.org has a, a program called the National Schools of Character Program. And it's a very rigorous uh, process that schools go through to become national schools of character. And there are many of them, but the percentage of total schools that are national schools of character is not high at all. And there are some states in which there are very, very few. So the question one asks is, well, why is that? Why is it a matter of volition? We don't have that in our hospital systems. The hospitals don't have the option of not doing their best. They're not their best. It's going to be replaced. They're monitored. But in education, we don't do the same thing. And, and why is that? Well, when you think about educator preparation. A teachers typically and administrators typically are given very little preparation with regard to the social, emotional, and character development of the kids. You can be a certified teacher, a certified principal, and really a good one, and know very little about SEL or character development. And what we're seeing now is that that is not a viable long-term position. And so organizations like SELforUS.org, the Social and Emotional Learning Alliance for the United States, these organizations have sprung up to say, state by state, we need to build grassroots understanding of the fact that preparing our educators for their job in the future is going to be different than it's been in the past. We have to be more systematic in preparing our educators to encourage and nurture the social, emotional, and character development of our kids. I've said this to school superintendents in jest, but it's true. So even if you hate children, if you hate them, you should still encourage their social, emotional, and character development because that's the key to academic success. It's not as if kids have an intrinsic 
interest in the great books, they learn because they want to be able to do something great in the world. That's the driver. When you believe in kids, they believe in themselves and they want to learn. So many of the kids that we see with mental health difficulties, we try to fix them. And our lab has a motto, inspiration precedes remediation. Before you try to fix somebody, let's inspire them. And we have found that when we give kids service opportunities, it is such a powerful healing force for them. They feel a sense of usefulness. They feel a sense of purpose. They feel they matter. They feel people depend on them. That leads them to want to be healthier, mentally healthier, physically healthier. And yet we, we don't do enough of that. We have enough knowledge, but policy development is very difficult in the United States because each state can pretty much make its own education policy. Yeah, do we need the federal government or do we need a national policy agenda that's different from what we have today? Or is this state-by-state approach going to get us to where we need to be? The state-by-state approach is not going to get us where we need to be fast enough. There are too many casualties while the process unfolds. However, professional organizations have the power to accelerate this because if professional organizations come together to say these are the standards, then it doesn't leave the states a lot of operating room. You can't have teacher credentialing standards that go against the prevailing norms of all the relevant professional and scientific organizations. So there are different pathways to getting there, but the least desirable pathway is to have each state become enlightened about what to do. And part of the reason for that, and this is also something that we should interject into the conversation, is there's not a normal curve of distribution of mental health difficulties or addictions because there's not a normal curve in terms of who gets opportunity and who gets encouragement and who doesn't. So we have some states in the United States that don't have an interest in every student being equally successful and healthy. Some groups they have an interest in and some groups they don't. So policies that rely on states have to be looked at in a generational context before they change. And that's crazy. I mean, imagine it's true, too, that in our vaccinations, in our distribution of health services, it is not equitable across social and ethnic groups and economic groups. So if we rely on those processes to get us to where we need to go, we've got too many kids that are going to be literally thrown under the bus. Yeah, I like that idea of setting standards that can impact nationwide, no matter what state a child goes to school. And that's great. And I'd love to shift gears a little bit here again. So another point that I wanted to follow up on from our last episode with Jean was that when her son was in high school, the stigma and shame around mental health and addiction issues made it hard for her son and her family to seek help when he really needed it early on. And as she put it, that stigma and shame can actually kill people. Thankfully, to some degree, that stigma around mental health issues may not be as pervasive today as it was many years ago. But of course, it still exists in very significant ways. Can you talk a little bit about how school programming and the work in schools in general can help overcome that stigma and make it easier for children and their families to seek help? Schools have a tremendous role to play in determining what's normative 
And so if we can discuss mental health issues in school, and we can discuss addiction issues in school, and we can discuss it not in a personal deficit way, but in a contextual way, in a way that's more of a continuum, then we can make a difference. But even in our health education, we have not really developed that clear focus. There are some topics that don't get talked about every year in health education, like mental health doesn't get talked about every year in health education. And you know, that's kind of crazy. Addictions get talked about as kids get into be adolescents and stuff like that. We need to be thinking in terms of health. We need for kids to understand that their bodies work in a certain way. It's interesting to me that biology and health are two different subject areas. Not sure how you have much health without biology. And I'm not sure what the purpose of biology is if you're not thinking about health. So if we were to be more purposeful in our education, I think we can reduce that stigma. One conversation that can be had in a classroom, in a morning meeting, in an SEL circle time, is who in your family has had health-related difficulty? Every kid will have something to say. Who in your family has had some kind of mental health-related difficulty? And then we might give examples. They've been very sad. They've been this, they've been that. Every kid, whether they raise their hand or not, you don't have to ask them to raise their hand, but every kid will resonate to that. And then we talk about the fact that this is what happens. People have difficulties. Health mental health, physical health, just all kinds of things happen to you. You get help, you get over it. That's the model. You get help, you get over it. Drugs, well, you know, that's a certain kind of thing, but drugs are also important to helping us be healthy. We have to provide more nuance. And as kids get older, especially in adolescence, they can absorb a lot of nuance. They can be looking more at case examples. Think about why Jean's podcast was so powerful. It was rooted in a case example of her own son. And studying those case examples can be extremely powerful for young people to understand. That's what's needed in schools, is to elevate the conversation, sophisticate the dialogue, make it something that everybody talks about and not just certain kids talk about. And in essence, by normalization, you reduce the stigma. Now, yeah, that's, that's great. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, well you know, the, the other thing is that there are cultural differences in how mental health issues are perceived. And those things will also require work. And that may take longer because when you have congruence in the home and in the school, you get more progress than when the school says one thing and the home context is saying something else. That is a perfect segue to the next part of the conversation that I'd love to go to. Before I do that, one interesting point of everything you're talking about is in our space, which I'm sure you know, there's a methodology called the whole school, whole community, whole child model, which was created by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and an organization called ASCD. The best researchers and scientists in the world have created a whole child model with 10 components that schools and school districts can follow to make sure that that holistic approach that you were talking about before becomes the reality in schools today. We at Action for Healthy Kids, that's our guiding framework. It underlies all the program we do, and a lot of our partner organizations are exactly the same. And I'm mentioning it because, again, I don't think it's as commonly pursued as we really need it to be. We need to bring these kinds of models that really are about the whole child to scale. It's such important work. And one component, and this is why it's such a great transition, one component of that is around parent and family engagement. So in your work, 
In addition to the school setting, you have studied social, emotional, and character development in family settings. So can you talk a bit about what your research says that parents and other caregivers can do to support a child who is struggling with mental health or substance use issues or otherwise, what they can do along with their school to make a difference? Yeah, it's so important that you mention the the whole child models. Character.org, what used to be called the Character Education Partnership, has a model called 11 Principles of Character actually predates ASCD's model. I have worked extensively with ASCD on that. And parent-family engagement is one of their 11 principles. And, you know, in my own work, you know, I've written emotionally intelligent parenting. So from an SEL perspective, we talk about, so what is it that parents can do to help kids develop their strengths in emotional intelligence? And there are a lot of things that come into this. Again, I try to think preventively because when you're talking about a child who is in the midst of mental health difficulties, there isn't a generic answer to that question. One has to look at the specific pathways that have gotten the child and the family to that point. It is critical to understand that it's not about the child that the child is not like a car that you bring into the muffler shop, you put the kid on a lift, you take out a few parts, and then you put the kid back on the road, kid's fine. No, it's a family system that has to be looked at. So that is something you know that I benefited in that from my training as a clinical psychologist and a child and family therapist. The one thing you learn is no generic answers. You've gotta look at each situation. You've got to understand how did we get to this point. Very often, there is the issue of disappointment and assumptions. These are two key things that families have to watch out for. That communicating disappointment in your kid doesn't turn them around. It pushes them away. And making assumptions about what your kid has done and what your kid is going to do, taking out your crystal ball, is very dangerous because we then come to adopt a view that our kid doesn't want to be better. But all kids want to be better. All kids want to have things that are normalized and and reasonable and happy. There may be a slight percentage of kids that is so truly internally damaged that they want to bring down the rest of the world with them. But that is a tiny, tiny sliver of kids. Most kids want to have things be good. They don't know how to do it. Empathy is one of the key social and emotional skills. And empathy is something that parents need to be expressing to their kids much more frequently, especially kids who are in difficulty. They need to feel understood They need to feel that there's a pathway of communication back to the parents. So Dr. Elias, can you talk a little bit about what parents and other caregivers can do to make sure that their children have someone, some adult, some nurturing, caring relationship with whom they can confide? Yeah, when I work with parents in groups or in a therapy context, parents want to be the ones that their kids come to and communicate with and tell their things to. But that doesn't always happen. And so what I try to emphasize to parents is that it is critical that your kid has someone that they can talk with. Is it a sibling? Is it a cousin? Is it a grandparent? Is it a coach? It doesn't have to be, you know, a family member, but it needs to be someone. And of course, it could be someone in school. Unfortunately, there are not enough school counselors to be able to ensure that every counselor has an existing relationship with a student. And it's an issue from a policy perspective because it's hard for me as a kid to confide in you if we've never met 
And when a therapist, an outside therapist meets a kid, a few sessions are required to build a rapport. But when a school counselor tries to work with a kid, they don't always have the luxury of those few sessions because there are literally hundreds of kids that are their responsibility, especially when you go to middle school and high school. So while the counselors can be, and some teachers can be, and some coaches or people who run clubs, parents do need to have the conversation with their kids about how important it is for them to have someone to talk to. And you don't have to tell me. I don't even need to know who it is. I just need to know that you're talking to someone. And, and that's the, that is so critical. So empathy, communication, and avoid communicating disappointment are all critical. And the child who is involved in mental health difficulty, they're involved with this all the time. I think it's hard for us to, I don't know, sometimes appreciate if we don't experience it ourselves. What does it mean to be depressed? To be depressed is to have constant thoughts about how bad your life is. But when you're mentally healthy, you don't dwell on those things. When you're in a state of depression, you can't not dwell on those things. Of course, you want to be distracted from that. And there are some positive things that can distract you from that, like service, helping other people. But then there are negative things that can distract you from that, like getting involved with addiction, risky driving, risky behavior. I mean, when you're busy taking all those risks, you're not simultaneously thinking about how miserable you think the world is. From my perspective, I want parents to think about how do I make sure that my kid is always belonging to something positive, that they're always part of something meaningful. So when difficulties do arise, they have got something where that connection is strong enough so that they will not want to risk it and lose it. And they've got a competing dialogue in their head. Yep, things are bad, but look at all the good that I'm doing here. And what happens in therapy? That's exactly what therapists try to encourage. They try to introduce another set of cognitions, another layer of self-talk so that the individual doesn't get dominated by the negative side. As a parent of three kids of school age, message taken and wonderful advice. So I, I really do appreciate that. We're going to move on to finish up our conversation. And I always like to ask people before we wrap up one question, your research and your career. You talked about your 43 years that you've been working on your current endeavors, all been dedicated to studying ways to improve social and emotional health and character development and to support kids and families and communities. If you had to pick one thing, what would be your greatest wish for today's children and youth? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for children and youth is that they can go to schools that are caring communities that are dedicated to social, emotional, character development and excellence of every kind that they can experience in those schools only encouragement and not bias. And that this happens from preschool through high school and then even into post-secondary education. I feel like that's attainable. I can have wishes for parents as well and families, and I don't know how to bring that about at scale. But what I'm wishing for schools, I think can happen at scale and should happen at scale. And quite honestly, I believe it will happen at scale. I have to say thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share a little bit about your research, about your work, and about your your thoughts 
about where we can go. And I really, really do appreciate you joining the episode today. Thank you so much, Dr. Elias. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. Elias for joining us today to share his research as well as some of the things we can do to improve the health and well-being of children at school and in our homes. Remember, you can always find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and leave a review so more people can find us or check out some of our past episodes. I'm Rob Besegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids.